Welcome to When Pigs Fly, a podcast that uncovers Cincinnati's rich business history from the 1800s to today. We talk to companies to learn the ups and downs of entrepreneurship, what it takes to grow a successful business, and to prost to future innovation. Okay, back for another episode. This is episode four, and we're going to be speaking with New Riff Distilling today, and specifically with Jay Ayersman. He is the co-founder and vice president of strategic development. I'm quite excited to be talking whiskey and whiskey history. Patrick. Oh, same. I love me a good bourbon. For our audience, this will be a different episode than normal. Ali nor myself have brought the history fact today. Our guest, Jay, has. So we're super excited to learn more about Cincinnati's distilling history. Yeah, let's get into it. You know, what's great about New Riff and you, Jay, as Amy was saying, have quite a tremendous knowledge of history, of the bourbon history here. And so I think it ties so nicely in the sense that, first of all, New Riff, you have New Riff on an old tradition. So that'll tie in later when we start talking a little bit more about the business. But talk to us a little bit about your knowledge, your bourbon history knowledge here in the tri-state and in Kentucky, and especially how it relates back to New Riff. Sure. Well, New Riff, in a formal sense, is disconnected from Cincinnati's uh, whiskey history because it, it was gone well over 100 years before, well, I suppose from Prohibition, if you want to really mark it there. But, uh, and, and Northern Kentucky's whiskey history, there has had been at the time we got started, I guess there was only one other distillery in greater Cincinnati, which was Woodstone Creek which was the first craft distillery, to give them a small shout-out, in, in Ohio. They're now located in St. Bernard. So there wasn't really much going on here. They're very small, those, those, that couple. Wasn't much, certainly nothing in northern Kentucky when we got started. So it isn't as if we you know, saw our neighbors and, and many other businesses jumping onto this and, and decided to jump in ourselves. From New Riff's perspective, it started really just right within us, I, su- I suppose, is one way to look at it. And as you you may know, our sort of origin story came out of the party source and uh, the brilliant entrepreneur at the party source, Ken Lewis, in his entrepreneurial spirit. One of those great, you know, working for Ken now since 2001, he's, he's one of those great American entrepreneurs. As much as we can talk about our whiskey or talk about the products that we make and things, there's just a, a raw story there of tremendous American entrepreneurialism from Ken. And not from me, I assure you. <laughs> I don't have really an entrepreneurial bone in my body. But uh, there's a great story in there about that from, from his perspective. So we spun that out of the party source and our experience there. But to connect it to... Cincinnati's distilling history is is absolutely something that we are cognizant of and, and aware of that history. Uh, I'll be full confession, and me a whiskey nerd and, and a history geek and a Cincinnati native, I had no idea 20, 25 years ago, even even 15 years ago, no idea of America of, of Cincinnati's rich history in in whiskey as well as beer. We we think of Cincinnati as this great beer town, and we were, we certainly were. Yeah. And you can drive mm-hmm. down through over the Rhine, and you see all these old breweries and things. Yeah. These these 
you know, crumbling brewery buildings and the cellars that the go tunnels, under the yes. street and <laughs> the tunnels and the and the lagering that happened there and stuff like that. Well, actually, back to, let's say, just very broadly speaking, well, well before the Civil War, but even uh, the, really the sort of golden age of it was, let's say, from the 1870s, 1880s up to uh, 1906 and and thereafter, Cincinnati was even a bigger whiskey town than we were a beer town. You would never have said Cincinnati is the the center of the American brewing industry. Well, we, we weren't. There were many great beer towns. Milwaukee was one of them. And you wouldn't have said we we dominated American beer production. But we did dominate American whiskey production. Cincinnati was the mm. nexus, the largest whiskey mart, to put it that way, in the country in those days. And is that because of the bourbon trail being so close by? They would just like bring up the bourbon and the, all the whiskey to Cincinnati? Very much so, Patrick, yes. What was going on in Cincinnati at those days in, in whiskey making was that it was a, a sort of a depot, a landing point for a tremendous amount of gallons of whiskey coming up from Kentucky. And in fact, very, very many of the Kentucky distilleries, some of which the locations or names at least uh, still persevere today. Very many of the Kentucky distilleries in those days were funneling their, their goods up to Cincinnati where they were put in bottles or blended with other things and sent out to the world. Very, very many of those distilleries were owned by Cincinnati companies. If you go and look at a, at a trade publication of those days, and you could find some images online of this thing, you would see XYZ Distillery, Bardstown, Kentucky, Nelson County, Kentucky, Frankfurt, all the all of these distilleries in Kentucky, and then it would say offices, Cincinnati, Ohio, and that was where the the business took place. That was where they were owned out of, and what Cincinnati became was not a, a huge distilling town, although we did have. I'll get to this later. We did have a number of distilleries here, and good distilleries too. They made good whiskey. Trust me, I've tasted it. I, I have bottles behind me in my horrible office here that I'm not showing you. I can send you some images, but I have yes, please. Cincinnati whiskey distilled in my hometown uh, yet today, these, these antique bottles that I have. So we had distilleries here, and we, and we had good distilleries, but mostly to, to be fully transparent and honest about our whiskey history is that uh, Cincinnati made a lot of questionable whiskey, actually. In what way? Well, the, what does that mean? <laughs> the, yeah, what does that mean? The, the term whiskey in those days, let's just pick a day, 1890, yeah. was not really defined. And any number of people could cobble together a concoction and uh, call it whiskey. There's no regulation. Yeah. There was not. Yes, yes, exactly, Ali. We'll, we'll get to regulation also in a few minutes. There was not a regulation about it. There was not a definition, not a protection about it. And so in, in there's a, a wonderful book, called The Whiskey Merchant's Diary, written circa 1856, uh, or at least that's the time frame that it involves, and beforehand by a, a man named Joseph Mersman. Hmm. Mersman. And uh, he was a, a young man on the make, an immigrant from Germany, as so many were in, in yes. Cincinnati yeah. at the time. And he had a job at a whiskey merchant, and he was learning the trade. It's a very dry read, as many people's diaries would be. What would, what would your diaries say if someone read it? It would actually, mine would probably be kind of boring most days. He was recording uh, also recipes for, for what was called at the time rectifying whiskey. 
And they were terrible recipes. They were full of all sorts of additives. And to, to simulate, you know, a good straight bourbon, add this many drops of oil of camphor or, or copper sulfate or hmm. these, these terrible things that would never be imbibed today. <laughs> One recipe of his, I, I think it was for a, a wine, actually. But the, the, the recipe begins saying you should take 15 pounds of beef. Oh, what? Beef, yeah, exactly. Like, what the <laughs> heck? There were there were many, many scores and scores, 75, 85 companies. If if you look at a city directory, a, a city like business directory from those days, you would see literally almost 100 companies in downtown Cincinnati, many of them on streets that no longer exist yeah. because they were down on the riverfront. Today, they're covered by stadiums and things like that. These, these addresses of companies that were, were whiskey makers, but they, they were making rectified whiskey. And today, rectification has a bad tinge to it. And, and well that it should, because that was not good whiskey. So rectification, correct me if I'm wrong, is adding things to the bourbon or whiskey, correct? Correct. Okay. Uh, what, what these distilleries would do is they would take good, honest straight bourbon from Kentucky distilleries or Cincinnati distilleries and either blend it with other things or they would sometimes bottle it straight up and send it out. Oh, uh, but they also would take all these distilleries and I'll, I'll tell you about the location and the layout and the technology of some of the distilleries a little bit later, but they would have stills where they made whiskey, but they would also have stills where they made what was called just spirits, or they would call them cologne spirits, because one of the things that these things could be used for was the making of things like cologne and 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 uh, mm, perfume. Burn. Spray some bourbon on me. Serious burn. You see, you talk about a burn. So what they actually digested was not not only good straight bourbon whiskey that was tasty to drink, but they were a clearinghouse, if you will, for a host hundreds, hundreds of distilleries all through the Ohio Valley, including very many of them all up into Ohio. And if you follow the uh, canal, the Miami Erie Canal that is today I-75, and it wound its way up through Hamilton County, and it went up north past Troy and Piqua, Ohio, and places like that, there were distilleries, farm distilleries, dotting this place all along. And if you were a farmer in 1850, 60, 70, 80, 1900, you probably had a still. Most farmers had one still. And what they did was they grew a crop of corn, or many of them rye, and they would distill it one time. So it was very, very rough. It wasn't delicious, drinkable stuff. Yeah. But they weren't, they weren't concerned about making whiskey. They were concerned about growing this grain, getting it the hell out of my field, <laughs> in a barrel, on a wagon, to the canal and bye-bye spirit and it goes down river to these distilleries in Cincinnati. And correspondingly, the distilleries were often also located on the canal. And so they would take in grain and turn it into whiskey, but they would also take in spirit from these many, many, hundreds of them, incalculable number of farm distilleries all up in the Ohio Valley. And they would take the rough, once distilled spirit from those distilleries and turn it into a usable spirit. And, and they could make some of it into cologne, but they would also turn it into rectified whiskey by adding all sorts of flavors to it. So interesting side note, Cincinnati has a tremendous flavoring industry, don't we? 
We do. You know about the the, the businesses here that are flavoring houses, Givaudan and Flavor Maker, and Mm -hmm. and I can't even remember all their names, but it's a really going concern. And today that is sustained by their work with people like Procter & Gamble. And you can smell those things as you drive through, you know, Carthage and stuff. Uh, I grew up in Clifton off of Ludlow Avenue, and I could smell those things wafting down the valley. Sometimes (laughs) it was nasty, but many times it was like... (laughs) Ooh, oh, that smells like vanilla. Oh, that's delicious. I bet that's going in my ice cream or something like that, you know? So uh, the, those, some of those flavor houses have their origins, quite literally, in being whiskey flavoring houses. There was a, a neat blog post I read recently about this that detailed fortunes of one of them. I can't remember which one it was, but literally it was a, a whiskey flavoring house in the 1800s, and it made... It made products that were meant to flavor whiskey. And all these years later, granted through many corporate permutations and they went out of business and they got bought by somebody else and they got subdivided, blah, 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 blah. But from a business perspective, our flavoring industry here has its roots almost more in the flavoring of whiskey with spurious and questionable today substances as it does flavoring things like soaps, you know? So even today, our, our businesses here are intertwined in the history of, of whiskey making. Granted, that was a questionable, by our standards today, quality of, of whiskey. So when did we see the turn, too, of, of regulation? And was that after Prohibition? It was not after Prohibition. No, it was before. So I'm holding here in my hand, let me pick one up, a bottle of New Riff Bourbon. And on the front, it, it is embossed in the glass. It says bottled in bond. Mm. And on the back label, we describe just a little bit of what bottled in bond is. And it reads, our high rye bourbon is bottled in bond without chill filtration, exceeding the world's highest quality standard for spirits set forth in the 1897 bottled in bond act. So New Riff is committed to bottled in bond whiskey. It's pretty much all we do in, in whiskey. And explain what bottled and and bond is for those who might not know what bottled and bond is. Sure. Just a a quick rejoinder on what what that does mean, Allie. Um, It is a set of quality standards that a whiskey, and it can actually be applied to other spirits, bottled and bond whiskey has to adhere to this set of quality standards that are, in fact, the highest in the world, higher than the standards in, than the legal standards in Scotland, higher, much higher than the standards in cognac. Among them are the whiskey has to be at least four years old. It has to be 100 proof. It cannot be blended with another kind of spirit. It can't have any additives to it like coloring or flavoring. Uh, there's a, a number of, of requirements, but the, the point is that it is indeed a, a regulatory device that is really the country's, and I think it might be in the world, the first product protection legislation. The first thing to say, we're going to codify this product and for the purpose of reassuring the public of what they're buying to protect the consumer really that they know they are getting the genuine article the real mccoy that we will protect this and the bottled and bond act was promulgated and pushed through congress by kentucky distillers famously edmund uh, e.h taylor was one of the the guys leading the charge on making this because they were sick and tired of making what they thought was good whiskey and all of these people in, in Cincinnati, particularly, they, they would call it that Cincinnati whiskey, you know, <laughs> shaking their fist in the air, were uh, trading on the name of whiskey and trading on the name of bourbon. And yet it, it wasn't made with 
quality in mind at all. So the 1897 Bottled and Bond Act was America's first venture into let's protect and and regulate and and delineate what is whiskey. And how curious, how how, how American that the first thing we protected wasn't the medicine. It wasn't the aspirin. (laughs) It wasn't the baby food. Yeah, it was the whiskey. Let's protect the whiskey first. Whiskey comes first. So today, of course, product regulation and and promulgation of of these kind of regulations is is commonplace. But back then it was a novel thing. And that was the beginning of the end for Cincinnati's rectifying. But the real end came in 1906 when um, President Taft signed into law the Pure Food and Drug Act. And this was what defined whiskey in a broader sense. Mm. And from here on, we see that whiskey has to be distilled from a mash of grains. If you're going to put a bunch of flavors and crap in it, you can do that, but that has to be called blended whiskey. And so evermore in America, blended whiskey is associated with not really very good quality. And, and well that it should be, because if, if you pick up a bottle of blended whiskey, most of the time American blended whiskey in, in the store and read the back label and it says something like, composed of 80% grain neutral spirits, which is just grain alcohol, and 20% straight whiskeys, and caramel coloring added and, and things like that. They can add a little flavoring if they want. Most American blended whiskey today we don't think of as, as excellent. You know, straight bourbon, in the end, straight bourbon won. Kentucky bourbon won the battle of what is going to be called whiskey. And for for our part at, at New Riff, we're glad that it did because that's what we make today. And that's the tradition that we stand on. But we, we embrace and want to tell people, teach people of Cincinnati's whiskey history, particularly getting around finally to the distilleries that were here that were good distilleries and making good juice and deserve to be remembered like our breweries do. That thought that you started with of being an entrepreneur, right, even though we we're talking about party source, what does it mean to be a good entrepreneur in the whiskey business today? As ever, there are opportunities to cut a corner and opportunities to make great whiskey, or at least to, to attempt and to plan and do everything you humanly can to make great whiskey. There are many, dist- I, you know, I don't need to go into the the history here of craft distilling in America, it's blowing up all over. We had a front row seat to see that at the party source. And to be fair, we would not, we might not be here were it not for the craft distilling movement. They were one of many inspirations to Ken and I in starting New Riff, the biggest inspiration of all being what we saw and learned and, and worked with in the Kentucky bourbon industry. To be a whiskey entrepreneur today, you can be an entrepreneur in, in any number of industries, and you can do that any number of ways. But I think if you are propelled by the legacy of things like Bottled and Bond and letting the, the traditions of the past inform you to be a, an honest whiskey maker, if you will, that, that yes, we made this, we're doing our best to make the, the juice from scratch. Uh, that is a question for any entrepreneur. Now, you can go both ways. There have been fortunes made on sourced whiskey and invented stories. And from an entrepreneurial, from a business standpoint, who are we to say that you shouldn't do it that way? Yeah, More power to you. You know, that that's a, a noble cause as well. And I admire those people who have pulled that off, you know, mm-hmm. that, that from a, from a pure business standpoint, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And in fact, that whiskey is, is usually very delicious also. I mean, it, it came mm-hmm. from, from uh, the Kentucky or the sour mash bourbon industry. But what will really be a a legacy, what will be a lasting thing 
Here we have so many labels on the shelf that are names that go back to the turn of the 18th century. I'm sorry, the 19th century, you know, that go that are that are that are people from 200 years ago, 185 years ago. And those names are still in our consciousness today. That to me is building a, a real legacy and building a real history. And that's what New Riff hopes to be. We we hope that we are doing at New Riff a uh, a generational business. So you clearly were inspired by the history of bourbon and its legacy to start New Riff. Can you get into like how it all started? Um, I know we've like mentioned a couple of times, like it started with Party Source, but wh- when was like that aha moment? Can you tell us about the early days and kind of break that down Especially for us? Especially because it's sure, an undertaking, sure. right? I mean, moving into <laughs> deciding to start a distillery, there's a lot of process <laughs> to that. Right. <laughs> the The genesis of it was it, it kind of bubbled up or burbled up out of what we were doing at the Party Source. And Ken and I, Ken says it was my idea. That's a, a generous statement by my employer, <laughs> my friend, Ken Lewis, all these years. A, a generous statement on his part. I never went to him and said, hey, boss, we should build a distillery in the parking lot and uh, <laughs> make bourbon. And, oh, by the way, you're going to have to sell the store. Uh, yes. I never went to him and spent ele- $11 million to build this place. I never went to him and said that. So it, I have this it wasn't sort of Yeah, it wasn't my idea, but I, I, I probably did contribute the uh, sort of from a whiskey creative end, the yeah. notion that we could do this ourselves. But it was Ken that sort of cupped, cupped that notion in his hands and there was a spark and he breathed life into it and, and built a fire, so to speak. I remember... The first I ever heard mention of it from him was, it was after a, again, to give a little bit of due to the craft distilling movement, I had attended a, uh, in Louisville, a, a craft spirits, craft distilling conference. I was the only retailer in attendance. And uh, mm. it was a conference, uh, it was the American Distilling Institute Conference, ADI. There were probably 175 people there. Let's just call it 200 people. It wasn't that big. Yeah. And uh, I went to it and met all these distillers and had all these conversations and, and learned so much. And I brought it back to the distill to, to uh, Ken and, and John Stiles, the general manager at the party source. And I, I was debriefing them standing before Ken's desks, you know, talking about, let me tell you about what I just went and saw. I was excitedly describing, listen, Ken, these, these craft distillers, man, they're they're all over the place. They're doing. <laughs> they're, they're making all this stuff. They're uh, they're making cool new things. We should be doing more with those. I'm going to do more with those guys. I'm going to order more of their kind of stuff and find them. And I got exposed to it. And Ken, in those days, he smoked a pipe uh, at his desk, and he was puffing on this pipe. Uh, and if you've ever been around a pipe smoker, they they hold it in their hands and they. Yes. Puff on it, you know, like this. And he was puffing on it. And a pipe smoker will sometimes gesture with their pipe as if to make a point. You don't talk with your hands, but they talk with their hands with the pipe. And he's he's gesturing with his pipe and he says, piping a little bit. And he says, maybe we should build one of these distilleries. And it sounds a silly story. And Ken rolls his eyes every time I tell this story. And I've told it a lot of times, but it's a true story. And I stood there listening to him and I watched him and I said, hearing, you know, let's, maybe we should build one of these distilleries. And I said to myself, that is a pipe dream. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? Great. 
So we're going to build this distillery. Now what? Because you, you're you obviously at the party source. You're not necessarily blending and working with the grains or a master distiller. And, you know, where do you go and find a master distiller? And just beginning the process of building that building, right? I imagine, is very complicated. Because you also have two spaces, which I do want to touch on the Rick House later and, and the, the rules and the regulations that you had to go through to build that I think is extremely interesting. But let's start with the new Riff uh, party source neighbor building. Right. So Ken Lewis, Mr. Lewis is never one to do things by half measures. <laughs> yes. He, he wasn't, we're not going to just, you know, put a, a still at the back of the store and, and have a little shack, you know. Uh, <laughs> he, he is a, a project builder. He's, he built. Style. He built all these stores. the The story of the party source itself. We don't need to, to belabor this now, but that that alone was a stunning piece of of uh, really a real estate project. Mm-hmm. Uh, when he went to build the party source and put a, a a big huge liquor store, the biggest that he had built yet, and this is after building many large stores in in Louisville and building a chain and and all of those were real estate projects too but this thing in 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 Bellevue was another uh of really another stripe he had to build you don't know, may not know this but there's a a stream it's called Taylor Creek mm-hmm. it's named after Taylor General Taylor that founded Bellevue it it runs underneath the store if you go to the back of the store you can see the creek. I did not know that. And it so happened. yeah, that when when Ken came to build that, he found this location that everybody else had deemed was commercially worthless and it was literally a ravine and it was this Taylor Creek that conducted uh this creek into the river. And uh, it had been farmland for many decades. He bought it and uh worked out the real estate swaps and things between Bellevue and Newport and so on and so forth and built cost a million dollars. He built a a culvert to conduct the stream to the river. Then you put a store on top of the culvert. It was a a stroke of genius. And that is how that store came to be there. And that alone is a stunning story. Well, you may recall at the party source site, if you've lived around here long enough, there was a, a, a large berm, a levee in front of the store. If you parked in the parking lot, your car would be facing by its front or its back this large levee, about 25 feet high, that uh, went from the flood wall south and protected Newport from floods. There was this levee there and this huge dome of, of grass. And Ken always had his eye on this levee because the city of Newport owned the levee. They couldn't do anything with it because on one side was the 471 exit ramp. And on the other side was Ken's parking lot, the party source parking lot. So the only thing Newport could ever do with this levee is mow the grass. And they did. (laughs) (laughs) And I remember that levee. So Ken, after he decided, yes, Jay, let's build this distillery. Let's do it. He went to the city of Newport. We went and talked to the city manager. And Ken essentially said, I want you to give me the levee. Just hand it over. And walk go? away. Yeah, how did that go? <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna pull down the levee. I'm going to extend the flood wall, which the Army Corps of Engineers would prefer a flood wall actually to a levee. And uh, we're going to pave it over and uh, expand the party source parking lot and expand the the party source as well because that that levee proceeded south. If you go and look at you know look at the site, look on Google Maps, you can see the store. And by by getting rid of the levee, he could expand the store. And we needed more space at the party source. Yeah. And uh, oh, and by the way, we're going to build a distillery. 
Yes. <laughs> and I remember, you know, it, it figuratively speaking, the the city manager's knees were cracking, to, were quaking together, and and wobbling at the knees. And he said, "You had me at distillery." <laughs> <laughs> and what year was that, too? That would have been two thousand when we really formally went to them was two thousand ten. Um, okay. And uh, it was late late 2009 or or early 2010. That was the the very beginnings of of Ken discussing building the distillery. And did he have a visual too of what he wanted that building to look like? Not really. No, we handed that all to the architects. Yeah. Uh, except that we did want it. We 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 were an ur- we we're an urban company. We we don't have great grandpa's great grandpappy's recipe yep. of bourbon. Yeah. That he that we've kept under the mattress for the last 125 years. Yeah, we we don't have any of that kind of history. We're an urban distillery, so we didn't want a barn. We didn't want you know make it look like like some other distilleries. We wanted modern, sleek, innovative architecture, and and that's what we got in in the building. So so that was the the sort of direction to uh, the architect, and they took it from there. Now the Rick House too is, which is also over Newport. Because what part of town is it? Is that Newport? Is that Coving- Covington? Yeah, that, that's Newport. It, uh, our our warehouse complex. It's in West Newport. Talk about that and having to build that because weren't there regulations that were very similar that had to be implemented in basically like a CVG or airport in order to have that there. A little bit, yes. So the warehouse complex, we uh, rented a building there from the summer of 2014, after we started distilling whiskey and stored our whiskey in that warehouse. It's the old Green Line Streetcar Company that you, you may know if you are a, a, a geek about local uh, public transit. Uh, it was a streetcar company that ran in Northern Kentucky. It was the, uh, you know, the Dixie Terminal downtown. That was the, uh, the Cincinnati depot for that streetcar company. The streetcars would cross the bridge, do a, a wind around in the Dixie Terminal and head back into Northern Kentucky. So they serviced really all of Northern Kentucky from, from Ludlow to Dayton and from Covington and Newport down to Fort Thomas and, and Alexandria and places like that. And uh, later it became a bus company. And then they went out of business in the 70s. When we uh, rented that building and later bought that building, uh, it had been vacant for about a dozen years. And the prior occupant had been a glass tempering facility. Mm. So we we got into this old building and uh, that was our warehouse. And later we bought uh, another building. By the way, portions of that building date back to 1890. It was the power source, the power generator building for the streetcar company. They, mm. they burned coal to, to make their own power mm. and generated electricity to run the streetcars. And next door to it was uh, another of what the Newport residents call trolley barns. There's three of them and we own two of them. <laughs> These trolley barns or streetcar barns. And the, the one next door to our primary building was, it's to the north of that. And it, is, uh, it was a streetcar, like a repair shop. And so all of these buildings are characterized by these garage doors that uh, they can drive the cars in and and work on them, paint them, put them. You know, there there are, are were pits that they could get underneath them, and they could oil the axles and all the things that they did. So it was a maintenance shed, if you will, for the streetcars. So. With those two, we we needed more space, and there was a lot of space on the site. We built a rick house, yeah. and uh, because again it it is an urban location, regulations dictated that we had to install fire suppression equipment. Now most bourbon rick houses 
don't have any such thing. If if a if a warehouse catches fire, they pretty much just let it go, and they they try like heck to prevent it from catching any of the any of the other warehouses on fire. In fact, today what they do is build a warehouse out in the country in the Kentucky bourbon industry, and they build a a, a dike around the building, an earthen berm, such that the the whiskey that comes out on fire, if it if if, if it happens, uh, doesn't is contained. But we mm-hmm. couldn't do that in Newport. So rather than containment, we have actually a foam fire suppression system in the building. And it's it's the uh, the only other kind of it in in the area is at is at the airport is at CVG. So the the uh, Newport Fire Department had to go out to CVG to learn how to work with this foam suppression. It's a very expensive warehouse, but from our perspective too, it's we would be happy even if we weren't required to put in such a suppression system because unlike a large company like a Heaven Hill, we have one warehouse. Yeah. Now too, but we we have all of our whiskey, our futures, our lives are bound up in this warehouse, and we can't just look at it as to say, well, we lost one warehouse, we have seventy five more. <laughs> if they, if that warehouse went up in flames, God forbid, <laughs> knocking on my wooden desk. Uh, you know, we're screwed. So we <laughs> can sleep at night knowing that the whiskey is protected. Do you know of any other whiskey brands that have, are doing what you're doing? I don't know of any with, with a warehouse like that. I'm sure there, there might be as more and more distilleries get situated in, in cities and, and in urban locales, uh, they, uh, they might face the same issues. I don't know. So you guys, you know, definitely have built up a huge following, you know, in the tri-state and across the country. Where do you where do you see you guys going in the near future? Well, you know, we we're it, uh, this is a, a very pat answer, probably Patrick, to your question, but we're we're going to keep on keeping on. We are ex- every year expanding to more and more states. We just opened, for example, in Wisconsin. We're not in all that many states. Well, actually, we, if you count on your hands the number of states we're in, it's more than you'd think. However, some of those states or those distribution areas are, are very shallow. So we're in California in, in four stores. Hmm. Actually, now five stores. Just friends of ours in the retail industry, again, from the days when we were liquor retailers, and we want to be sometimes in the great liquor stores of the world and the country. We're in Britain in two stores. <laughs> so uh, there are places you can, you can list that we are distributed in, but in a very shallow manner. Our home territory we regard as Ohio and Kentucky and Indiana. Uh, we're in Illinois, but only with one chain of stores. We're in uh, Tennessee, but only in a couple of districts of Tennessee. We just opened in Wisconsin, like I said. So slowly but surely, as, as our production volumes from four years ago uh, increased, we will get around more and more of the world, so to speak. We're also proceeding with more and more to use one of our slogans. Again, it's on the back of the bottle. It says, a new riff on an old tradition. That's what what new riff aspires to be. I can talk more about that later, but that means that we keep coming out with more and more riffs. <laughs> and those riffs, to borrow the, the musical analogy, which is exactly where the, the term came from, Ken Lewis imagined that, what if you, you considered the distiller as a musician? Hmm. He knows the tradition, but he's making versions of it. He's playing around with it. He's making a riff. And that's where the name came from, new riff. And is that lo- part of the logo too in the design, like uh, a music? Yes, that's exactly uh, what it's meant to be, is, is like a sine wave. Mm. So w- we, we, when we 
you know, make whiskeys. We want them to be inspired by and informed by the tradition, but new riffs and new, new things. And so we, we continue to come out every year with more and more riffs and these riffs get heavier and heavier and heavier make a heavy metal symbol with your hand now please you know? <laughs> or with a with smoke and a pipe in the other hand please please bang your heads yes uh the, we we continue to come out with those and we we released a tranche of them last year uh including one called winter whiskey which was a uh, a grain bill inspired by chocolate oatmeal stout beer Ooh. so these these riffs become more and more intricate and more and more involved and more and more exciting as in music you know maybe a musician their their first album is relatively conservative but by you know by the time Jimi hendrix released axis bold as love and electric ladyland they kept getting more and more intense and wilder and wilder and that's that's a little bit where we're going how long did it take you all to come up with the concept of new riff and the name and the branding of it all yeah, that's a, a great story in itself, Allie. In the, in the beginning, it was just Ken and I kicking ideas around. Mm -hmm. uh, the first other person to come on board is our today our vice president of operations, Hannah Lowen. She's, yeah, our, she's our, also our, our general manager. She came on board and was sitting in meetings with Ken and I as we wrestled with coming up with a name. Let me tell you, it's so hard to yeah. come up with a name for something like this. The weight of what you're doing really is on you. It's not easy at all. And it, it's, I really admire the companies, the branding companies of which we have so many here in Cincinnati that can, that do this thing for a living. It, yeah. It's a like very raw electricity of creativity. So were you also working with branding firms here in Cincinnati? We kicked around a few things, but the, the name we came up with ourselves, we had a few early name concepts and uh, they didn't fly for various reasons. One of them had uh, trademark issues. Somebody else had something on that. And it, it was, uh, to, to, I told the story already where, where Ken came up with the name and he came into this naming meeting and, and literally said, I had an idea last night. What about, and went on with this, this kick on musician. I am a musician. I'm a guitar player. Yeah. I play Jimi Hendrix. I wish I could tell you I came up with the name, <laughs> but it was all Ken's idea. Ken is a music lover. He's not a musician himself, but I think when I was born, he was, he was driving around the country in the proverbial Volkswagen bus following the Grateful Dead. He's a deadhead, and, and this happened upon him, this name of, of New Riff, and it stuck. And that is what the logo is meant to be. The logo was designed by um, local branding company BLDG yeah. in, uh, yeah. in Covington. Those guys came up with this, this logo that at the time, personally, I wasn't super sure about it, but it, they looked okay. But it has actually been very durable and very ongoing. And people keep seeing new things in the logo. If you look at our logo, it, it looks like uh, it's a sine wave and uh, meant to be you know, evocative of, of audio and things like that. It's also the river. Yeah. It, there's an N inside the logo. There's an R, so new port, new, and there's an R in there too that you can see. One person said to me, you know, it looks like a vibrating guitar string. Yeah, I said to myself, son thought, of a gun, yeah. you're right. It, it, it is like that. And then the, the funniest one of all, last year, 
credit where it's due to Bruce Corwin, the founder of uh, uh, Louisville-located Bourbon Brotherhood. I was on a, <laughs> on a Zoom call with him, and he said, you know, your, your bourbon logo, your, your logo, I see, as we were talking about, he says, I see an A and an F. An and so we are Bourbon AF. You <laughs> and oh, I oh, I guess I could see it too. Oh, interesting. See it being that this is a family program, I yeah. won't explain what that means. But we, I love that. But new riff is Bourbon AF. Bourbon AF. <laughs> so people keep seeing things in our logo, and that's maybe how you know you've got a really strong brand. We also like the cadence of it. New riff, boom, new boom, riff. punch, punch. It's, uh, we think, a, a very durable brand and logo and name and everything about it. And it was a, a massive team effort to get to where it is. To the bottle design as well was so many, a big group of us at the company working uh, with uh, LPK, wonderful yeah. Cincinnati-based branding firm, of course. And they helped us with the bottle design and uh, helped, helped sort of cognate the bottle design as being itself encapsulating the new riff on the old tradition. If you're a new riff on an old tradition, again, you have to know the tradition. Mm -hmm. So there are, are parts of the bottle design that are traditional. It's a whiskey bottle shape. There's embossing, which I love. There is, uh, there's a tack strip on the top that gives some of the old time whiskey information, but then it's also sleek and black and the it's wording and the text, all that stuff is very, very new. So there's a tension, a, a wonderful warm and, and creative give and take tension inside the bottle between the new and the old, just like there is, we believe, in, in our product and in our, uh, our whole venture. So during this venture too, were there any obstacles along the way that you guys did not predict? Or were you pretty well-knowledged into the whiskey world that you knew the steps that you needed to take to launch this brand? We knew a lot. Ken and I you know, long experience in the spirits industry. We, we probably had something of a leg up on all those people that I used to see at the distilling conferences who mm -hmm. some of them would be, you know, well, my brother and I, we got a farm in Illinois. We're wondering what to do with all of our corn. And we, we scratched our head and thought about whiskey. And we didn't come from that. We, we knew a lot of what we wanted to do, but we knew we needed a, a bunch of help. And one of the two most serendipitous things of building New Riff was finding a guide, a master distiller, someone yeah. to help us with this. And as it turned out, we, we found that person. His name is Larry Ebersold. He was the master distiller for many years at the Lawrenceburg, Indiana plant, hmm. what is today MGP, oh, wow. at the old Seagram's plant. Huh. You can't say this about very many people or very many fields, but in fact, he is the best in the business. He is the best sour mash whiskey distiller in the Kentucky, in the in the wider Kentucky bourbon industry, we think of uh, Four Roses as being a fantastic distillery. Well, mm -hmm. he he taught some of them how to make whiskey. Um, wow. When when he's so good that when the big Kentucky multinational conglomerates are building a new distillery, or when their avuncular old distillers, wonderful people, get to a situation that they can't figure out what to do, those companies, the big companies, call in. They call in the wolf. They call in Larry. That's and currently he's uh, managing a project, uh, I won't say which one, but a, a very large project down in Kentucky for one of these big distilleries. So we had the, the tremendous good fortune to find the best in the business living in Hebron, Kentucky. So he's 20 <laughs> minutes away. He's recently retired and he's looking for work. 
Come on board, <laughs> sir. Um, he, what a he not only was a, a design consultant, but he wound up being like a construction czar for us. I, yeah. I remember Ken saying those exact words to Larry. I need you to be the construction czar. He was the one person who could kind of hover at 10,000 feet over this project and pull together all of the strings, the engineering, the still design, the grain handling, the permitting, all of this stuff and help inform everything. But along the way, he taught us what to do. If yeah. you add it up, everybody who works at New Riff, myself, Brian Sprantz, our head distiller, our, our fantastic head distiller that came to us from Boston Beer Company, mm. uh, Samuel Adams here in yeah. Cincinnati, all of us put together had distilled exactly zero whiskey in our lives. I was an old home brewer. So you're really uh, relying so on him. I, that informed a lot of my my own knowledge of this stuff. Brian was almost a master level brewer, a fantastic beer, maker of beer. Golly, the, the man can make beer uh, <laughs> at Sam Adams. But he had never distilled whiskey. I wish I could tell you, yeah, I used to, to, to I had a still in my dorm room. You know, there's <laughs> distillers of whom that's true. I never did that. I never distilled, uh, was a home distiller. I never distilled uh, illegally. I had a whiskey collection in my dorm room, but I didn't make it. <laughs> well, and whiskey and distilling whiskey versus beer is very different too. Very different. I mean, one of them's flammable. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> we, we had no experience in actually making this stuff. And so uh, Larry came on board to teach us what to do and teach us to make great whiskey. We see him now and then. He comes around, you know, every other month or so and tastes what we're doing. And, and maybe we have a question for him. We, we think he's proud, proud of us, oh. uh, Larry. So he kind of came in, set the, set the foundation and, and let you guys fly, I guess, at that point. Ta taught us how to fly and we took off under our own wings. That's to uh, your question, Allie, of things that we didn't expect. Well, right out of the gate in the spring of 2014, as we were getting ready to open, and, and start production, there was a barrel shortage. For the first time in living memory, oh. uh, there was a barrel shortage in the Kentucky bourbon industry. You couldn't just call someone up and say, yes, I'd like 2,000 barrels next year, thank you. They were, uh, they were over-demanded and under-supplied. Um, it was economically very interesting you know, conundrum and, and reason what happened. Uh, it wasn't that there weren't enough trees. There's plenty of trees. Although we do need to maintain forestry for the future, and that's a, an ongoing concern in the bourbon industry, but it wasn't mm -hmm. running out of trees, uh, and it wasn't too many distilleries, although there was that as well. The number one thing that took it out was the recession. And mm -hmm. by the time 2014 came along, so many people had gone out of the logging business that there were not people to go into the woods to pull out the trees. The weather played a part as well, but the, the number one problem was the lack of, of forestry. Uh, the, the, the logging industry took a hit, not from anything to do with bourbon, but from housing, from the housing industry. Mm. When, when housing cratered in the Depression, uh, the Great Recession of, of 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12, whatever, when housing went down, that is what drives forestry in America. It's not bourbon. Yeah. You know, bourbon account, bourbon barrels account for something like a half of 1% of forestry in America. It's plank board feet of lumber that uh, get turned into condominiums. <laughs> yeah, but it still affects your business too, yeah. Yes, so there was, there was a, a dip in that and we couldn't get any barrels. It was the most Wild. depressing thing ever to have built this place and got a team together and you're eager to go, but the, the companies, the cooperages that you were calling up in the spring of, in the winter of 2013 were not returning your phone calls. Yeah. And finally, uh, Independent Stave of uh, Missouri 
saw what we were doing and saw the press releases. And I, I took a call from their barrel salesman and he said, listen, I, I don't have any barrels for you today, but I, I, we really want to work with you. We're, we're re- impressed with what you guys are doing there. We want to be part of it. Mm-hmm. And I could get you 100 barrels a month starting in August of 2014. I just mm-hmm. about cried. <laughs> they yeah, came through. Yeah, you really and, can't and, start and, distilling until you have that. Yeah. So the other thing that happened was, and this is another interesting business you know, story, but uh, we took on contract distillation services. This was not something that we planned to do. This is an old tradition in the bourbon company where somebody has uh, a a bourbon brand and they say, I want to make a bourbon. I want old Patrick. And this is going to be a great bourbon. And and please, Brown Foreman or or Wild Turkey or Heaven Hill, will you make me some barrels of whiskey? Will you sell me some, some bulk whiskey? And this is an old and ancient tradition. It's been going on from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happened then was the large distilleries cut their contracts. And they, they many of them, I, I don't know the ins and outs of their contracts because it's their business, but we were told that so-and-so is not making whiskey for us anymore. And so these whiskey companies came to us saying, I've got barrels. I don't have anyone to make whiskey for me. What do I do? And so we began a business of contract distillation that begins to this day. And that also allowed us to get underway and start making some whiskey and was a, like I said, not something we planned on. Ken asked me at one point, uh, do you ever think we could do some contract work? And I said, well, the big boys have got that pretty much sewn up. You know, I, I, maybe we could do some. And it, it was a huge, huge game changer for a young distillery to be able to be in full production running every day of the week, making as much whiskey as you possibly can, but only about 40% of it for yourself and most of it made for other people because you're getting paid to make it now. And we had not planned on doing that. And uh, that was a total game changer. Uh, it accelerated the timeline. You know, when, when you write a business plan, you, well, you have a plan. You, what are you going to be doing in four or five years? And the advent of contract distillation for us just accelerated that game plan, I don't know, by a decade or something like that. It was a huge, huge development. Yeah, because if, like you said, if, if this all started back in, uh, what are we, 2021 now, around 2010, you guys all have to be pretty proud of yourselves of where you've come in such a short period of time. It's been a decade. That's about it. So we'll leave, we'll leave you with this because, you. I mean, you've told us so much great information. I'm just fascinated also with the whole yes. history, the whiskey history here. You know, where... Where do you see the future of Cincinnati whiskey? What do you want to see in this city moving forward with whiskey? Yeah, well, I, I don't want us to go back to making rectified whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody uh, does. To, to go back to those days. But uh, we do, we are cognizant of, uh, at New Riff, of greater Cincinnati, northern Kentucky's legacy. It wasn't, you know, bourbon wasn't only in Bardstown and Louisville and places like that. We had a great industry up here as well. Yes, it was rectifiers, but there were also great distilleries. What neighborhoods do you two live in? You live around here. I'm in East Walnut. East Walnut Hills and Mm -hmm. Patrick? West side, so like Green Township area. So yeah, not really when, a neighborhood of <laughs> the, the West Side. You know, there was a there was a Titanic distillery. It was Fleischmann's distillery down on the river on I think it was called Bullhorn Creek, like at the at the bottom of Delhi on on the okay. Ohio River, well. west of Cincinnati, right on Highway 50. And uh, it was not far from where Pete Rose was was grew up, mm. was that kind of neighborhood. There was a Fleischmann's distillery yep. there, the same as Fleischmann's yeast. They were uh, this yeast company, 
And they got into business of making yeast and realized, you know, as long as we're going to make this yeast, we might as well make booze as well. <laughs> and they were a, a big distillery down there. Right next door to them was the country's biggest cooperage. So uh, the world ran on barrels back in those days. There were cooperages in, in all over Cincinnati, about 50 of them or so. Mm -hmm. And there were distilleries all over the place. Many of these were, were rectifying companies. But like I said, there were also good distilleries. So I enjoy asking a Cincinnatian, where did you grow up? Where do you live? And telling them, you know what? There was a big distillery in your neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> yeah. there, was, there was one in, um, in Carthage owned by a man named Ed Brinkman that stood astride of you know, as a student of history and, and economy and stuff, I find it fascinating, the sort of arteries of commerce. And we had the Mill Creek, we had railroads, which are, have not moved in 150 years. We have what is today I-75, but back then was the, the Miami Erie Canal. And commerce grew up and down this whole, this whole valley of the Mill Creek. And the distilleries would locate themselves on the railroad and on the canal. And one of them was in Carthage, uh, made by Ed Brinkman. And before Brinkman owned that place, he had founded or uh, been part of founding a distillery in my neighborhood of Clifton, where I grew up. It was called Clifton Springs. If you go over the Ludlow Viaduct and you look over the viaduct to the north and you see these rail lines there and I-75 is right there, that was where Clifton Springs Distilling was. It was a big distillery. It was a good distillery. They made good whiskey. And they also distilled cologne spirits like I was describing earlier from Ohio's uh, <laughs> uh, farms. I, I grew up uh, up the street from that. I had no idea yeah. that there was a distillery down there. There was a, a very large one in Kentucky, in Petersburg, Kentucky. It was actually the biggest in the state at that time. And it was called the, the Petersburg Distillery. Uh, it is celebrated today by our friends at Boone County Distilling. It was located there in Boone County. That was owned by Cincinnati companies. And if you want to see the one remaining piece of architecture of our distilling legacy, go to, do you know the, the crazy, uh, the country and Western bar, Bobby Mackey's oh, yes. in uh, That's south of Newport. It's, it's, in, it's in Wilder. Well, uh, <laughs> across the street from Bobby Mackey's, you will see a tall, today, very nondescript yeah. building, a four-story building. And that is an old whiskey warehouse huh, who would from have a distillery called, at the, at the time it was called Old 76 Distilling. And it was a, a, a big place. It, it had buildings on both sides of that street. You would have driven down that street in your horse carriage, your horse-drawn carriage. And yeah. there would be this, this huge piece of distilling infrastructure. There was the old distillery. Uh, you can still see some buildings of it from National Distillers right there in Carthage, where uh, my father used to work across the street from that place at, at another National Distillers plant. And uh, that was a major company. That was a, a legacy of of Cincinnati's history. And then, of course, MGP in, yeah. in Lawrenceburg, Indiana. Yeah. That site dates back to 1847. And that is the oh, yeah. one place still in business today that was one of the old distilleries of greater Cincinnati at the time. So they were, they were, they were all over the place. And we have a legacy to stand on and, and say to our friends in the south of Kentucky, hey, we did this too. We, we, we have a, a bourbon history as well as you do. And I would like to see uh, more businesses wake up in Cincinnati and, and do more and more of that. I hope that we can become a bit of a revival. There's now a number of distilleries that coalesce around, uh, we call it the beeline, yeah. uh, the um, 
Northern Kentucky uh, Tourism Bureau, uh, Meet NKY, mm -hmm. uh, developed this concept of the Beeline, and it is a, an official partner of the Bourbon Trail. It consists now of several distilleries, including uh, Old Pogue Distillery in Maysville, such a, a, a rich history there as well. So um, I guess my hope is to see m more people doing uh, more, you know, I, I hope that we don't have too many, too many brands that are just buying whiskey and and repackaging it. I hope that yeah. uh, more folks will will make it from scratch and and do what we always wanted to do at New Riff, which was just to have people say they did it right. That was uh, our wish for New Riff. So I, I hope that that Greater Cincinnati continues to to do it right, if I may be yeah. so bold. The New Riff on an old tradition. Well, Jay, we, well, why don't we leave it at that? We, we really, really appreciate you taking the time. It was fun talking with you guys. As, as you see, I have a bent for this kind of thing and appreciate uh, when I can talk about it. Thanks. That was exciting. I learned a lot. I, I feel so much smarter after this conversation. <laughs> I'm so glad, number one, we Gained let him. Gained a few him, IQ points. We did. I, I'm, number one, I'm so glad that we had him come with the, his, the whiskey history, right? Not to say that we couldn't have yeah. brought some interesting facts to the table, but as you said, he's clearly passionate about the whiskey industry and his knowledge shows. And I think what's so interesting is how he has gone about working with the team that he has to launch this business where he had, mm. again, the, the party source experience, the distribution experience, the retail experience, and then, again, finding those people who who can bring it all together, the master head distiller from MGP. I mean, that's huge. I just think it's super, super interesting, his background. Yeah, and I think another interesting piece, for me at least, was the fact that they had to like uh, kind of pivot and do like contracting when they first were starting yeah. out because of a barrel shortage. So uh, that was very interesting. And I was also highly interested in the fact that like, hey, Cincinnati actually does have a distilling history yeah. you know most people think about like kentucky but yeah. not Cincinnati, like you said the bro Ohio, like, so bro or beer too whenever i think of new riff because if anybody has the chance to go see the space obviously right now we're in the middle of a you know covid still but when this all lightens up taking the tour and if you ever have the opportunity to see the rick house those regulations and like you said basically you're taking cvg regulations and you have mm -hmm. to apply them to this rick house because yes if it were to catch in flame like go up in flames your next door neighbors hello newport you know you're not in the middle of a cornfield yeah. you're in the middle of a city and you don't see yeah, that totally very different often challenges. when it comes to distilling that's one mm -hmm. of my favorite i think most cool parts of the brand <laughs> And I think as this is where distilling will probably go in the future, as Jay mm -hmm. said, you know, very much urban and, you know, popping up in cities across, you know, the country. So I'm super excited to see where New Earth goes. And that, yeah. that was a great conversation. And embracing our whiskey history. And heck, if you're a whiskey fan, tell us what your favorite local whiskey is, if that's the case. And if you want to also learn more about what New Riff is releasing, per usual, always follow their social channels. But I think the most interesting thing that they have is their New Riff Whiskey Club. You can sign up for free, and that allows you early access to their new riffs into the bourbon world when they release new bourbons and whiskeys. So the New Riff Whiskey Club, I would suggest signing up for if you want to stay up to date with them. This was awesome. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Ali, and I'm excited for next time we, we meet. We will cross to future innovation. And here's some necessary legal stuff. Ali Martin and Patrick Bailey developed the When Pigs Fly podcast in collaboration with the Up Company LLC. At the time of this recording, we do not own equity or other financial interest in the companies which appear on this show unless otherwise indicated. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinions of the EW Scripts Company and its affiliates or Generator Management LLC and its affiliates or any entity which employ us. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. We have not considered your specific financial situation nor provided any investment or legal advice on this show. Thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next week. We also want to give a shout out to Claire and Christian of Moonbow. They're the two artists of our intro song, which is so catchy and gets stuck in our heads all the time. So bop over to Spotify or wherever you find your music and give them a listen. And Like the Night by Moonbow is courtesy of Silver Lake Sync.